Parenting is hard. Time is always short. Circumstances are rarely ideal. Won't my child be better off if we all stick to one language? Despite the science saying otherwise, and plenty of news accounts about the benefits of being bilingual, the seemingly common-sense approach of sticking to one language continues to prevail among millions in America, even among bilingual parents. And thus, the road upon which American babies take their first steps on their bilingual journey is often strewn with obstacles. What you just heard was Sean Pratt reading from part two of my book, America's Bilingual Century, how Americans are giving the gift of bilingualism to themselves, their loved ones, and their country. Part two is devoted to how you can raise children to be bilingual, even if you're not. Welcome to episode 50 of the America the Bilingual podcast. I'm Steve Levine. So, just how can parents give the gift of bilingualism to their children, even when circumstances are rarely ideal? Let's listen as Sean reads Chapter 18 of America's Bilingual Century. Part 2. How to Raise Children as Bilingual, Even if You're Not. Epigraph. What our children see in the world depends on what we show them. Rose K. Goldson. Chapter 18. Giving the Gift to Our Loved Ones. For the first half of the 20th century in America, bilingualism was thought to be bad for children. In 1939, the same year the New York World's Fair debuted its City of Tomorrow, and the first demonstration of television, an American psychologist named Medora Smith published a study of bilingual children in Hawaii. She concluded that bilingualism caused a retardation of language development that could be counted in years compared with monolingual children. Her study presented lots of data. In fact, it was a monument to quantification, according to the linguist Kenji Hakuda. The take-home message was that bilingualism in American children, whether arising from native languages or immigrants' languages, was something like a medical ailment that needed to be cured by an inoculation of modern, monolingual English-language education. Not until 1962 did two Canadian researchers, Elizabeth Peel and Wallace Lambert of McGill University, challenge this view. They studied 10-year-old children in Montreal and, unlike prior studies, carefully controlled the selection of samples. Their results turned a half-century of studies upside down. The bilingual children outperformed the monolingual kids in verbal and nonverbal intelligence tests. It was a watershed moment. Lambert summed up the science that existed in the first half of the 20th century. Earlier studies over a 50-year period had concluded strongly in favor of monolinguals because, it turns out, they had not matched bilingual and monolingual groups on factors such as social class background, nor had they measured the bilinguality of those presumed to be bilingual. Social science, like all science, progresses in a fitful, uneven manner toward becoming less wrong about the world. After Peel and Lambert, 
scientists around the world began careful studies trying to parse out cognitive differences that might exist between bilingual and monolingual children. They have continued to find advantages for bilinguals having to do with their thinking, creative abilities, and empathy. Also, scientists have found that being bilingual may help with the acquisition of additional languages. Any delay among bilingual children in learning one language over the other appears to be temporary, while their total vocabularies are greater than those of monolingual children. At the other end of the age continuum, another Canadian research psychologist, Ellen Bialystok, has found mental health advantages in bilingual older adults. They appear to have an improved cognitive reserve, resulting in a later onset of the symptoms of Alzheimer's by approximately four years. Adding to these mental health benefits are economic reports that show measurable benefits to bilinguals in landing jobs, earning more money, and advancing in their careers. Other studies show that these individual successes stack up to societal economic advantages as well. In the words of the polyglot author Gaston Dorn, the benefits of bilingualism have, in recent years, been piling up like laundry. In the first part of this book, we looked at the array of new opportunities American adults are seizing to become bilingual themselves. In the second part, we'll turn our attention to how the gifts of bilingualism are being given to children and young adults. And for American children and young adults, there are even more opportunities, from the early years at home to college and service years beyond. Many of the successful practices American adults have seized upon are just as relevant for children, such as the importance of doing what you love in the language and the unimportance of correcting speech. And while it's never too late to begin learning a language, it's never too early either. The earlier children emerge as bilinguals, the more years they have to benefit from the many blessings that being bilingual confers. We were all sitting on the floor. Alison Altman Kay, and her 14-month-old baby girl, Charlotte. Charlotte's nanny, Isabel Perez, a native Spanish speaker, and me, with my audio recording equipment. Allie and I were speaking in English since I was interviewing her, while Isabel was cooing to Charlotte in Spanish. After a while, Isabel began to softly sing a Spanish lullaby to Charlotte, while Allie and I continued. I'd love Charlotte to be able to enter school knowing another language, said Allie, who is a novice speaker of Spanish herself. The research I've read, it just seems like there's so many amazing advantages for her brain and for her life. The person in the room best able to give little Charlotte this gift is Charlotte herself. While humans have known from time immemorial that children pick up languages fast, until recently we didn't know exactly how they do it. Is it that they learn language quickly from their parents and other caregivers? Or are babies born with something from which language somehow springs? After decades of research, we do finally know a few things. As the psycholinguist Steven Pinker puts it in his book titled The Language Instinct, complex language is universal because children actually reinvent it generation after generation, not because they are taught, not because they are generally smart, not because it is useful to them, but because they just can't help it. And babies can perform this feat not only in one language, but in two, or more, simultaneously, 
If parents build a bilingual language scape for their children, the languages will come. If both parents speak a minority language, they can choose to speak that language exclusively at home. This is called simply enough minority language at home, or ML at H for short. If just one parent in a two parent household speaks a minority language, that parent can choose to speak only that language to the children, a practice called one person, one language, or OPOL. And yet, parenting is hard. Time is always short. Circumstances are rarely ideal. Won't my child be better off if we all stick to one language? Despite the science saying otherwise, and plenty of news accounts about the benefits of being bilingual, the seemingly common sense approach of sticking to one language continues to prevail among millions in America, even among bilingual parents. And thus, the road upon which American babies take their first steps on their bilingual journey is often strewn with obstacles. My polyglot friend, Jack Rupers, knew just how he would create the bilingual language scape he wanted for his two baby boys. They lived in America, so he knew English would take care of itself. He would speak only his native Dutch to his sons. From the moment they saw their first daylight, I spoke Dutch to them, Jack told me. Within about a year or two, I ended up translating about 75% into English, meaning I said things in Dutch that I wanted to say and then translated most of it to make a connection. When his boys were five and three, I dialed down the translation to about 50%. I was very, very determined to do this. Jack also provided plenty of cartoons and other videos in Dutch, and made sure the boys had plenty of time with their Dutch grandparents who, to their delight, could use their native language with their grandsons. Jack's boys, Cyrus and Philip, now adults, told me their version. We thought it was Dad's secret language, said Cyrus, until their first trip to Holland. Said Philip, we were riding in the train from the airport and everybody was speaking Dad's secret language. Cyrus and Philip became so comfortable in Dutch that they elected to go to college in Rotterdam, and they added other languages to their skill sets later in their schooling. But their Dutch will be with them forever, thanks largely to the persistence of their father. Jeannie Forrest, the woman from the Philippines, who first learned Tagalog in Manila and then English on her way to becoming an American citizen, told me that when her daughter, Amber, was little, I tried to talk to her in Tagalog, and she was learning because I wanted her to learn, Jeannie told me. But then I stopped because I got scared that she might not learn English if I continued doing this. Jeannie later said that a pediatrician told her that speaking another language would not have confused Amber, but by then, it was too late. Both Jeannie and Amber now regret the decision. When Amber was a teen, her mother took her back to the Philippines to visit relatives. Amber met her maternal grandmother for the first time. She did not speak any English, and I knew the bare minimum phrases like, How are you? I love you. I miss you. But that was the extent of our communication. I asked Amber how it made her feel. Not being able to learn from my grandmother, learn all her history, it just makes me feel like I am missing out on a part of me, she said. Jeannie's fear about speaking her heritage language to her daughter is 
Even today, so common that the authors of books on raising bilingual children address the concern. There is no evidence that bilingual children differ from monolingual children except for the fact that they produce mixed utterances in addition to monolingual ones, writes Ophelia Garcia, a scholar of bilingualism. And young bilingual children know usually by the second year of life how to make the choice of whether to use one language or the other, or a mix of the two. There is also little evidence, say the researchers Eng B. Chin and Gillian Wigglesworth, that bilingual children acquire either of their languages more slowly than monolingual children, despite having to cope with two different systems. But, the authors point out, the languages will mostly be used in different domains, with different people, in different situations, and thus the children will be inherently unequal in knowledge and application of their languages. This is another way of saying that balanced bilinguals are rare at any age. Unfortunately, parents face widespread monolingual bias in America, say the scholars Kendall King and Allison Mackey. It's not surprising even today to find teachers, doctors, and other people in authority believing that raising children in more than one language can be detrimental. Even though there is no sound research supporting these concerns, in many ways, we're still living in the shadow of these outdated notions, the authors write. In my reading of the guides for how to raise bilingual children, three central pieces of advice stand out. The volume of exposure children require, the need to give them good reasons for using their other language, and the importance of human interaction. The volume of exposure that children require is a direct parallel to the many hours required for adults who learn a second language. Just how much exposure time does it take? 30% of the child's waking time is a good number to shoot for, says Rita Rosenbach, a multilingual mom who has raised two bilingual kids. If you notice the real exposure time getting much less than 20%, try to find ways to boost it, she writes. Also bear in mind that once your children start school, you'll no longer have the control you have when they were very young. Whenever possible, overdo the exposure to the minority language during the years before she goes to nursery or school, she advises. 20% of waking hours is a minimum, writes Barbara Zurer Pearson, an authority in applied linguistics, and ideally more like 70% is what she advises. If parents follow the 20 to 30% of their child's waking hours, by the age of four, the child will have amassed somewhere between 3,500 to 5,000 hours in the language. Impressive numbers, even at the lower figure. And while babies are not studying the language with the diligence and experience of adults, their hearing is acute and their brains are wired for language learning. The combination can provide them the foundation. If the language is maintained, for achieving a native fluency and accent in their second language. In part one, we discussed the importance of where your adopted language will live in your life, the idea that after all the hows of learning a language, your long-term success as a bilingual will ultimately depend on what place or places you will use your adopted language. Likewise, for children, parents will want to be mindful to do things that their children enjoy in the target language. Most important, play, and other enjoyable activities with parents and others. Parents are also well-served to take the focus off language learning per se and put it on learning and doing other things in the language, 
as Adam Beck advises, don't teach, give joy. Playing with other children who natively speak the language can be particularly helpful for language learning. Apart from her parents, the bilingual child's most important teachers are other small children, say Edith Harding Esch and Philip Riley, the authors of a popular book on raising bilingual children. Every effort should be made to ensure that regular contacts do take place. And while the technology for language learning keeps getting more and more compelling, Harding Esch and Riley advise not to lean too heavily on it. Use media in moderation, advises Beck. What's much more important is reading aloud to your children in the second language, which he advises as a daily practice. Since children can normally understand at a higher level than they can read themselves, Reading aloud can entice them for years after they begin school. Use the technology, say King and Mackey, but know that it cannot substitute for a real person and real interaction. As with adults, it's best not to correct children. Although many people, especially teachers, have great difficulty believing it, there is no evidence that correcting helps people to learn, write Harding Esch and Riley. Instead, you can model correct speech occasionally by responding with a continuation of the conversation, but with correct grammar. When the going gets tough, as it certainly will at times, Beck advises to keep in mind that your child will thank you later in life, as everyone who is bilingual enjoys it so deeply. And yes, monolinguals can raise bilingual children. It helps if the parents are also learning with their children. Right, King and Mackie, even parents who know just a little of the second language can incorporate it into silly songs, games, and other intimate routines. Allie Altman Kay, with the help of her own growing bilingualism, her native-speaking caretaker, and her baby Charlotte, can give the gift of bilingualism to Charlotte. Sitting on the floor with the three of them, I could hear bilingualism happening in real time. Imagining the larger life Charlotte could have as a bilingual, Ali said, I'd love her to have that. There's lots more in part two of America's Bilingual Century to help parents find different avenues they can take to raise their children as bilinguals, and also how to make bilingualism a family affair. Be sure to check out the book page of americathebilingual.com for more excerpts from America's Bilingual Century, along with some free downloads. You can also see what some leading language educators have to say about the book. That's americathebilingual.com forward slash book. My thanks to the America the Bilingual project team, including Caroline Dowdy, our audio and digital book maven, Fernando Hernandez and his production house, Esto No Es Radio, who provides sound design and mixing. Mim Harrison, our editorial and brand director. Carlos Plaza, our creative director. And Carla Hernandez at Darumatech, who manages our website, americathebilingual.com. I invite you to follow America the Bilingual on Facebook, along with the Lead with Languages campaign run by our friends at Actful, the American Council on the teaching of foreign languages. Thanks for listening. Till next time, for America the Bilingual, this is Steve Levine.